Welcome to the A-Game Podcast with Nick LaMagna, digging into the minds and experiences of some of today's brightest entrepreneurs in real estate and business, along with Hollywood stars, UFC fighters, and your favorite rock bands. People that have figured out how to overcome obstacles, take chances, live boldly, and no matter what they do, they always bring their A-Game. All right, my guest today on the A-Game podcast is Paul Moore. Paul Moore is an absolute real estate rock star. He's been investing for decades and decades, retired after selling a business for multiple six figures when he was in his early 30s and went on to be a full-time real estate investor. Coming from a background as an engineer, he literally has recreated his entire life and is a wealth of knowledge and experience that you don't come across every day from finding tons of success in fix and flips constructions, uh, rent-to-owns, lease options, and then eventually getting into bigger things like multifamily, building multifamily, selling luxury lots in the water, and now is focusing highly on self-storage. He has contributed tons to the real estate blogs on the Bigger Pockets Network, as well as the podcast, How to Lose Money in Real Estate, which no longer does, but I love coming across people that are giving you the stuff that can go wrong and also the stuff that can go right. So you have a realistic expectation of the things that you can expect and make your own decisions for what kind of risks you would like to take or not. Because with real estate, there's something for everybody. What is your risk tolerance? What is your level? What are you willing to put in? So all those different things are just important. We go deep into that. We talk about what's happening in the market coming from somebody that's invested properly through multiple market corrections and adjustments successfully. What is he seeing? What is he looking at? We talk about the mindset needed being two and a half million dollars in debt, finding a way to get out of it, bad partners, and then why he feels that there's a really great opportunity right now in self-storage. We talk about funds, raising money, uh, different things for uh, taking advantage of opportunities, getting around shiny object syndrome, and what he feels today is the best asset class to invest in and why. So a lot of really good information. I'm very lucky to have this guy on. He's been on over 250 podcasts and some of the biggest podcasts in the entire uh, real estate niche. Uh, shout out to my buddy, Robert Leonard from the Investors Network podcast that he does in Millennials Investing. He recommended I'll pull over to me and I was very honored to have him on. If you look him up and you see what he's achieved, I have only scratched the surface on some of the things that he has achieved in some of the places he's been on and some of the people he's been involved with in his circle. So guys, as high level as they come, it's awesome to come on and share his time. And you always want to learn from the black belts. And this gentleman has definitely been around long enough to know what works, what doesn't work. And he stood the test of time for getting in the game and staying in the game. And those are the people that I always want to surround myself with. So thank you for listening. Thank you so much for Paul for coming on. Definitely check him out, follow him. Uh, his website and everything will be in the show notes as well as links to his books as well. And I definitely appreciate you guys listening. So while you're online, check out www.nicknicknick.com slash links for all the ways to connect with this podcast. We are available on pretty much every platform, including YouTube. So watch, subscribe, listen, however you like your podcast. Just please make sure you're subscribing so we can continue to get those numbers up and have guests like this come on and give you decades of experience and tips to things to do right and wrong to save you time and make you money for absolutely free. While you're there, all the ways to connect with me on social media, nicknicknick.com slash links. You'll see our Instagram or TikTok or Facebook, our Facebook group. If you have any questions you want to ask, any guests you want to have on, anything you want me to ask some more guests, post it in our investment group on Facebook. And definitely please follow me on Instagram and interact on some of these social platforms. I will be posting clips and highlights from this episode. The way that the guests know that you appreciate their contributions is by liking the post, sharing the post, commenting on the post, 
please do that. It takes two seconds to give a little thumbs up or a fist bump or this is great or tag a friend and the guests really appreciate it. It helps us keep this train going and get you guys top quality A-game podcast guests for the A-game podcast listeners. Last but certainly not least, if you're looking to do real estate, text me directly. It's the best way to get me. 516-540-5733. 516-540-5733. Text me the word real estate and we can start the conversation for whether you want to buy properties from me, sell properties to me, or find a way to invest in properties together, whether it's your first deal or your next deal. Let's make some money together and go to nicknicknick.com slash biggerpockets for all the ways to get a free checklist if you are a real estate agent, broker, or wholesaler to bring more value to your buyers. Thank you so much for listening, so much for supporting this podcast. Definitely please connect with us on social media, link up with me if you would like to do some deals together. And don't forget to check out our amazing guest coming on and sharing his experience. I cannot be more thankful that Robert Leonard hooked us up and that Paul was willing to come on and share his experience. So thank you so much, A-Game Podcast. Have a great day. Okay, today we have a former engineer turned full-time entrepreneur, real estate investor. He was a finalist for Ernst Young's Michigan Entrepreneur of the Year two straight years in a row, worked at Ford Motor Company in Detroit for five years, and then opened a, and started a staffing company that they sold to a publicly traded company five years later for multiple eight figures. He retired early and then got back in the game as a full-time real estate investor and has an absolutely incredible track record, including fixing and flipping, oil and gas, rent-to-own, flipping waterfront lots, new construction, multifamily, mobile home parks, and has now gone all in on self-storage. You also may know him as the author of Storing Up Profits, published by the world-famous Bigger Pockets, as well as the author of The Perfect Investment. You can see the links in the show notes for those. He's a common contributor to the Bigger Pockets podcast and the Bigger Pockets forums. You will see him all over there on the blogs and has been featured on over 250 podcasts, including friends of ours, David Perrin, the Military Millionaire podcast and the Millennial Investing podcast with Mr. Robert Leonard. You might also recognize him from HGTV's House Hunters and the former host of the How to Lose Money podcast. He is now the founder and managing partner of Wellings Capital and is helping high earners and high net worth individuals protect and grow their wealth through passive income, commercial real estate with over 550 investors, five funds, and 500 million in commercial assets to this date. Runs a fund seeking out the best operators in the country, husband, father of four, and most importantly, our guest today on the A-Game Podcast. Please welcome Paul Moore. <laughs> that was the best introduction I've ever had, seriously. You know, I, I sometimes struggle um, or usually I don't struggle because there's not as much, but you had so many different things that I was yeah. like, how do I put enough in there to give you the credibility without making you embarrassed that I'm just going to ramble on and on? Because, dude, you have one of the most impressive backgrounds, decades and decades. Uh, Everything everybody's ever wanted to do in real estate, I feel like you have accomplished at different points of your career. So it's uh, it's a big honor to have you on today, sir. Man, thank you so much. So for people who listen to something like that and they go, man, that's that's where I want to be. It's it's a little overwhelming. And I think they assume they want to do all that in the next three, six, nine months. But obviously it's taken you a long time and a lifetime of investing in experience and wins and losses to get there. But when you hear something like that with all those different things and those highlights, what do you think looking back on that highlight reel of your past 10, 20, 30 years? Nick, I, there was a time, so I've got a drawer over here. I'm going to eventually mount it on a, like a, you know, frame it of all the different business cards from Ford Motor Company and, you know, even some before that, but from Ford Motor Company on. And it's actually impressive at first, but honestly, I don't think of it as impressive at all. In fact, I thought even at one time, this has been years and years ago, I thought about getting a card 
serial entrepreneur and just leaving it at that. So I didn't have to keep, you know, keep getting these different cards. Honestly, I'm, I'm, I'm disappointed in myself. I really, truly am from the bottom of my heart. Here's one of the reasons why. So uh, Barry, my friend, ran for governor of Colorado a number of years ago, and he started rubbing shoulders with these really wealthy guys. I mean, billionaires. And uh, he said, you know, there's one thing that they have in common. They started at a very young age, typically, on one track, and they stayed on that one track for a long, long time, as in many, many decades. I mean, Bill Gates is a perfect example of this. Warren Buffett's another example, two of the wealthiest guys in the world. And then, of course, we all, you know, eight or 10 years ago, almost everybody has read the book called The One Thing by Gary Keller and my friend Jay Papazon. And it told us, it informed us that it would be better off to stay focused in one lane than have, you know, chase a whole bunch of shiny objects. And frankly, I should have got a card that said certified shiny object chaser, because mm -hmm. that's more of what I did. And sometimes, I mean, if it sounded really good, I wanted to be in. I mean, when we were successfully doing this North Dakota housing project, you know, like 12 years ago, uh, somebody comes along and goes, you know, the internet here in North Dakota is terrible. We need a great internet company. So within weeks, we had, you know, started Bakken Wireless. Why did we do that? Well, I should have said, that's a great idea. Somebody should do it. But instead, I got involved. I wish I never had. It didn't ruin me or anything, but it took my eyes off the ball. And I think I would have been a lot wealthier, a lot healthier, and a lot happier if I would have stayed seriously focused, Nick. And um, I, I could talk about that for the rest of the show, but I can tell you now I, I really, truly believe in that. Here's another quick thing. Mark Cuban said, diversification is for idiots. Warren Buffett said he agreed with him and said, Warren, uh, he said, uh, diversification is for people who generally don't know what they're doing. Well, that really upset me because I'm writing a book on Warren Buffett's principles for real estate investors. And I did not like that at all. I thought, well, there's finally something I disagree with. But then I thought about it. Nick, Buffett's only got 27 or 28 people in his home office. He's like the seventh largest public company in America. He's got 110 diversified companies. He's all about diversification. But think about it. Every one of them is extremely focused on one thing. You know, Clayton Holmes doesn't go out and, you know, they don't go out and set up timber farms to, you know, to cut down trees to provide plywood for their products. And Dairy Queen doesn't, you know, they, they don't own a paper mill to provide the cardboard for their boxes. They're focused. And that's what Buffett's so good at. And I think Buffett has brilliantly diversified. And that's what our company tries to do as well. We try to diversify across a bunch of experts. We want to be an expert in one thing, and that is finding the best commercial real estate operators and investing with them. And I wish, you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago, I would have got this straight. I think that that's an incredible insight. You and I were discussing it briefly before we started, and it was funny because you asked what I did, and I gave you 10 different answers. And then we came back to, hey, that's the opposite of what I suggest you do. And I'm a big believer in taking advice from people that have been doing this longer and better than I have. And so it's like you were reading my notes for the next thing. We, we were talking about focus. And I love that Gary Keller book. And I, I cite that first page all the time that I, I'll let you 
use the quote there, but I think about that on a daily basis when you open up that first page of the book, the one thing, and it, it's really eye-opening to, to think about how if you go in too many directions, you try and do everything, you're going to wind up doing nothing. But for somebody who's listening, you do have a long array of diversification. So although I do agree, like focusing is important, you mastered one thing or decided that one thing was no longer maybe financially smart to do, or maybe the market turned or whatever it is. So you have diversified the different strategies. So I think it's important for what do you pick? How do you decide what to focus on? And then how do you decide when to pivot if that's no longer working? Because again, markets change, asset class changes, funding principles change. Yeah. Nick, it's funny. I had a podcast for four years called How to Lose Money. And we interviewed, you know, 238 successful entrepreneurs, business owners, investors, and they told us about their stories of pain and loss and heartache uh, on the way to their eventual success. And two of the lessons we learned from that one was you've got to persevere. And we all know about perseverance and all the posters on our walls and things, you know, about how important it is to persevere. But another lesson was quit swiftly. What? Quits. Yeah. If you know you're on the wrong track, like we did with that wireless internet company, as, as an example, the first winter when it got below 40 degrees below zero, the radios that we had mounted on all these towers around North Dakota froze. We should have cut our losses right then and said, this is not working, at least in North Dakota. But instead, we tried to persevere. So if you know you're on the wrong track, or if you can see that the market's changed, like you said, or there's something new, it's time to cut your losses. You know, we all know about the opportunity cost, and we also know about we also know about the sunk cost fallacy. Well, cut your losses, get out, and go do something different. So I think it comes down to almost like a personal relationship that when you're you're starting to have doubts of like, hey, maybe there's something else out there. And you you pick at the band-aid, you pick at the band-aid, and then eventually one day you break up with somebody, you meet somebody new, and you go, man, I wish I would have done that six months ago. Oh, exactly. <laughs> it is so true. Yeah, and I have, a, I have stories like that. In fact, I told my kids, you know, about when I was in high school and college, how I, it's exactly what I did. And it, it hurt. I'm, I'm worst thing is it hurt the girl, I'm, you know, in this story. So anyway. So in business now, what are some of the things that you look for knowing, I'm sure you, you still get the same shiny object, but you're better at controlling it or knowing the red flags of what's going to be worth your time, yeah. what's going to be worth your energy. And at a time that we have NFTs and the metaverse and Bitcoin and yeah. all of these things, the shiny object syndrome is off the wall because everybody's, well, this is a new thing, RV park. So yeah. what's your process now to keep yourself focused on what will make you money now versus trying to not get stuck up in the yeah. phone or what you might be missing out on for later? Yeah. So Nick, just to be clear, because so, I, I imagine I've already confused the audience. Maybe I've confused myself here. But seriously, I, uh, what we do is we are a fund that has six different asset classes we invest in. And so I don't think it's possible for one small operator, one small company to be an expert in six different things. I mean, we're talking about you know, having a, a larger company with six divisions. Sure, that's one thing. But, you know, we have a small team laser focused on finding these commercial real estate deals and putting them together in a diversified fund. So I just want to be clear what we do. Um, we, I mean, I hear about senior housing. 
I hear about student housing. I hear about, you know, Bitcoin mining and uh, ATM investing. And now car wash investing is this new thing. It's not that new, but I mean, it's a big thing right now. We really, truly believe, I mean, I go back to Jeff Bezos. Jeff always planned on selling everything at Amazon, but he spent seven years, if I'm not mistaken, just selling books, even though he could have sold a lot of other things because he wanted to become the gold medal expert, the best in the world at selling books. Then he used those distribution channels to do other things. And so I, when we evaluated exactly a year ago this week, whether we were going to get involved in other things, like really profitable investments like ATMs um, and uh, carbon extraction deals, they were not commercial real estate. Uh, we realized, you know what? No, we're going to stay focused. We want to be the best in the world at this. And if it doesn't meet that criteria, if we can't be the best in the world at it, we don't want to do it. And if we can't find an operator who's the best in class that has opportunities that are unusually strong with a great character of their team, we don't want to do it. I love that. And I think that comes down to, again, you being around for so long, know how to recognize A players. And A players are going to find other A players. And I feel like that's what you do that other people that haven't been around as long as you or had the experience of knowing what a good operator is and what a bad operator is, don't have the background to be able to point that out and know who to trust and who not to. Yeah. I mean, Brian Burke's been at this longer than me. He's um, written um, a book called The Hands-Off Investor. And I personally believe that for the vast majority of people with wealth or with high incomes, they'd be better off staying focused on what they're good at, whether it's being a doctor, dentist, attorney, IT professional, or whatever, you know, staying heavily focused on that and then outsourcing their investing to other experts. Well, Brian Burke wrote a book called The Hands-Off Investor that's 300 plus pages packed with how to evaluate real estate deals and real estate operators and then investing with them. And so I would recommend somebody give that a quick read at least and then use that to evaluate where they're going to invest instead of trying to do toilets, tenants, and trash on their spare time. Because a lot of these doctors we talked to, I just talked to one an hour ago who was spending weekends, evenings, vacations, lunch breaks, trying to deal with tenants and find painters and evict people who stole money from him and even a murder. And he's like, why am I doing all that? I make enough money as an anesthesiologist. Wow. That's crazy. But it makes total sense. And I agree with you hundred percent. Stay in your lane, stick to what you're good at and find other people. If you're making money, you don't have the time. I'm a big believer in, you don't have 10, 20, 30 years to learn from the experiences that you already have. So leverage that experience. I think that that's a great thing. And I think what you were talking about also is super important because every time I get somebody very wealthy on or very experienced on or very successful on in anything, when I go back and I ask, hey, what was the, the key to your success? They all go back to mindset. It really came back to the beliefs there. And you've been through something that I don't feel a lot of people have. At one point, I believe you were two and a half million dollars in, in bad debt and you needed to kind of dig your way out. And I feel that that's the difference where most people will quit and you, as you said, persevered and found a way through. So I'm always interested in what was the self-talk? What was the mindset when the chips were down that let you stay in the game and get back in and persevere to get where you are today? 
was a really crazy story and it could take a long time to tell the whole <laughs> thing. So I'll try to tell the abbreviated version. So um, I had a couple million dollars in the bank in 1997 when I sold my company. And then I had two and a half million dollars in debt 10 years later, but it actually was all against real estate. And it would, I would say it was bad debt in the sense that we were investing in all kinds of things that weren't no way we're going to work or sell uh, or make a profit during the great financial crisis. And it was the fall of 2007. And I actually asked myself, you know, uh, what do I do to get out of this? And so I looked to one of my heroes, and this is George Mueller. George Mueller lived through the entire 1800s, basically. He had orphanages that cared for 10,000 orphans. And he really truly believed that he, you know, he did not need to go out and do fundraising campaigns. He had these radical beliefs that the money would just come to him. And he actually prayed and he meditated and he just believed that the money would come to him and it did. And so I thought, man, he's like, I had just read his biography. What would he do? And I thought he would give his way out of debt. And I thought that was a really weird thought. So I went to my CPA's husband, who's like, you're going to declare bankruptcy, right? You have to declare. I'm like, no, I'm going to give my way out of debt. That went really well. And uh, <laughs> at any rate, I went to my family and I told them the same thing. I said, look, look, our back's up against the wall. And about that time, my business partner quit because he said, there's no way I can pay half of the interest on all this debt. So he actually quit, leaving me with all the debt. And so... I was in a situation where um, we, we, we just, there's just no way out. And we didn't know how bad the great financial crisis was going to be because it was only the fall of 2007. We were hoping the worst was over. So to fast forward, we started giving a certain amount to charities and to nonprofits, things we were passionate about. January 1st, 2008, every week we gave a set amount. And four weeks later, I had a light bulb idea from a random conversation with a guy at a Subway restaurant that led to me being able to subdivide a five-acre piece of property that was legally not subdividable. And I went to the county planning and zoning people. Two days later, I laid out the plan. They shook their head. They said, we've been doing this for decades. No one's ever come up with a way to do this, but you did. And of course, you can do it. So it took a lot more pain, a lot more perseverance, a lot of work for the next 13 months through 2008 and into 2009 and the worst months of the Great Recession. But we were actually completely debt-free, including paying off our house right in the heart of 2009 in the Great Recession. Man, that is absolutely incredible. I love it. It's that. crazy. Yeah. Well, you, you seem to have a, everything happens for a reason and I'll find a way through this attitude. You don't, you don't hit the normal like stress, crying myself to sleep every night when things are down. Have you always had that composure? Yeah, I think part of it, I mean, like during the great financial crisis, 2007, 8, 9, I actually don't remember losing an hour's sleep over that. But now I'm kind of marveling at it. I'm like, did I even know how bad that really was? At the time, I just kind of rolled with it. And I try to do that because my dad said, you know, this is kind of crude, but he said, hey, son, don't worry about it. I mean, he said someday, a uh, hundred years from now, someone's going to be urinating on your grave and they'll wonder, they'll say, who was this SOB anyway? And 
that's kind of crude, but that attitude really helped. It helped me like, yeah, a hundred years from now, whatever I'm worried about, is not going to matter. If you have been kicking yourself that you didn't start investing in real estate sooner, 2020 is coming to an end. Let's start 2021 off on a good note by getting you into some real estate, whether you're beginner, intermediate, or advanced. Any way you're looking to get it on a residential, commercial, land development, wholesaling, fix and flips, whatever it is, let's find a way to get you involved in some projects, get you some properties, whether you want to sell some properties to me, whether you want to buy some properties from me, whether residential, fix and flip, cash flow, multifamily, whatever it is you're looking for, let's figure out a way to get you involved or find a way for us to partner up on some deals. Go to www.nicknicknick.com, go on the consultation tab and figure out how to schedule an appointment to talk about where you fit in if you are not sure, or you can just reach out to me on any of my social media channels. If you go on www.nicknicknick.com slash links, you will see all the different ways to connect with me and figure out how we can start to work together, make it happen. Everybody that invests in real estate always just says they wish they did it sooner. Best time to start is today. You know, it's, it's interesting you say that because I had a very similar epiphany when I was in Italy right before the pandemic. I was looking at, was it Michelangelo or something amazing? And I remember I'm looking at yeah. this person built and then you look down and you're like, I'm literally standing on the person's like grave. Like he's, and it was like, this was just a person that came yeah. into this and now they're just gone like everybody else. And it makes yeah. you realize that all these amazing things in life that people created were just people like you and I. You know, yeah. I think that was very inspiring to kind of see like, we're all kind of the same, we're all capable of amazing things. Yeah, I think if the pandemic has taught us anything, it's the value of time and the value of spending it the way we want with the people we want, doing the things we want. And that's, again, why I would go back to if you're already a successful professional and you want to be in real estate, it'd be great to find a great partner to invest with instead of trying to learn it on your own. Agree a thousand percent, which transitions perfectly into the next topic I want to discuss, which is today's market. So I think more than ever, the uncertainty from the average person on what's actually happening right now in the market, and especially the people that have not invested through any sort of changes in the market cycle, and it's just been all good, 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 no matter where you invest, having somebody like yourself who's already invested for decades in different market cycles and knows some of those things to look for and how to pivot and some of the red flags, I think that there's massive value in that I'm not seeing as much of today. So what is your opinion on what's going on in today's real estate market? Yeah. So Howard Marks uh, wrote a book called Mastering the Market Cycle and the Investors Podcast loves that book. And I love that book. And uh, Marks says, you know, it's impossible to predict exactly when the top or the bottom of the market is. It's just important to act appropriately for where we are in the market. So great question. Where are we in the market? Uh, one more quick quote. Warren Buffett said, sure, the rising tide has lifted all boats for a long, long time. And of course, you and I would agree for about 14 years since the Great Recession. But someday that tide's going to go out and then we'll see who's skinny dipping. I don't want to invest with skinny dippers, and I'm sure you don't either. A lot of the folks right now who are, you know, who are training and teaching the world, you know, they they didn't, they're not even taking into account the great financial crisis. They're not taking into account what happened just a short time ago. And honestly, some of them are saying it's different this time. Technology is going to help us get our way. We're, we're not going to worry. Inflation is going to counteract the cap rate expansion, et cetera. You're hearing all kinds of things from people who did not suffer through the last 
you know, financial crisis or the one before. And so I think we can learn a lot from people much wiser than me, like uh, Howard Marks, Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger, Ray Dalio, um, the guy who wrote Richer, Wiser, Happier, William Green, brilliant book that it really gets into a lot of these market cycle issues that just came out about a year and a half ago. And it's uh, just a phenomenal book. I think where we are is, you know, we're in a classic time where the cap rates eventually have to follow the interest rates. It doesn't make sense for an interest rate to go from around three to around where we're about to go, about 6%. But the cap rate, in other words, the sale price driver of commercial real estate, uh, the rate of return, if you will, for somebody who doesn't know what that means, the capitalization rate to stay where it's been at about 4%, for example. It just doesn't, the math doesn't make sense. And honestly, I think right now it's a lot, it's a really dangerous time for people who are saying, finally, I've been bidding on apartments or houses or multifamily, whatever. I've been bidding on these things and I've been outbid for years. Now I can finally get the deal I wanted. That's probably not good news, my friend. It's probably meaning you're overpaying, but no guarantee, maybe not, but I will tell you, it's a very dangerous time. It's a funny time we're in right as we record this, Nick, where the sellers who said last year, I'm holding out for 12 million and the broker's saying, I can get you 11. Now that seller's calling them and say, okay, I'll take 11. And that broker's saying, no, I can't even get you 10 anymore. And they wait six more months, which let's say that's right now, because let's say that conversation was back in February. Now they say, okay, I'll take your 10. And the broker says, I can't even get you nine now. And they go, they go, well, let's try for 10. And they find a sucker, if you will, who even at this higher interest rate will pay them that 10 million. Don't be a sucker. Pivoting on that, I know you brought up inflation. I've heard you talk a little bit about this, but I don't think people understand how to use real estate to hedge against inflation. If you can dive a little bit into that so people understand the, the pros and cons of really what that means for us as yeah. investors. Real estate is one of my favorite inflation. Well, it's my by far favorite inflation hedge. Now, I, I want to go back to something you asked about 20 minutes ago. I didn't really answer very well. And that is, you know, how do you know if you're chasing a shiny object? Well, for me, a shiny object would be something that has no cash flow attached. I think real true wealth is having assets that produce cash flow, hopefully predictable, reliable cash flow. And so if you have an asset that you have, let's say you got when the interest rates were three and a half percent, or even now at, let's just say a little over 5%, if you can lock that interest rate in for a long time, here's a couple of things that'll happen. Number one, as inflation continues, whether it continues at eight or 9%, whether it's really at 16% or whether it drops back to 3%, whatever it is that inflation will continue to increase your revenues while holding your likely largest cost constant. Of course, that's your interest rate or your debt service, if you will. If that debt service, if you can hold it constant for, let's say, a single family home for 20, 25, or 30 years, or for a commercial asset for 12 years, it's likely that that, re, you know, that, that interest rate, incre excuse me, that inflation will increase your revenues and therefore your net operating income because you're holding your largest cost constant, which is a wonderful inflation hedge. What it means is you can either keep up with or potentially even beat inflation 
and you can ride through this downturn to the upturn on the other side, which is always there, at least historically, it's always had an upturn at the other side. And then you can sell your asset for you know an even higher price. Unlike other asset types that have no cash flow affiliated with it, and it could go, you know, it could go up to 100x or down to zero just based on the whims of the market, the mood on Wall Street, a CEO scandal, or a random treat, tweet from Elon. <laughs> That's true. And it affects things in a very different way. And you bring up a very interesting point because, uh, and you've coined the term, which I think is outstanding, the new ruse, which you're getting full credit for. I thought that was so awesome. But the new ruse, the guys that are around and you see all these syndicators and they're the ones who are driving like the prices up on these deals because they don't know what they're buying. And I think it's it's really interesting to watch over the last two, three, four years, the guys that have probably overpaid for deals with not a lot of experience and probably didn't raise the money the right way that are now hitting that five, six, seven, eight year point where they are going to need to refinance and cash out all those investors that they syndicated and probably didn't adjust properly for the increase the way it did in the interest rates. What are those guys going to do? Yeah. So Brian Burke, again, I'm bringing him up because he's been in the business 32 years. Um, he told me about a few weeks ago, he thinks that it's likely, though it's not guaranteed, that two to three years from now, um, a lot of those folks are really going to be in big trouble. I mean, especially if rents go sideways. Now, we just talked about inflation, keeping rents going up. But there's got to be a limit. I mean, you know, I mean, as a, as a ratio of rent to income, people can only pay so much. If those things go sideways and if they don't get the rent increases that the multifamily syndicator promised or expected, or if they have an interest only loan that goes, you know, that may even be a flexible, uh, you know, floating rate. They could be in serious trouble even in less than two to three years. So I think a lot of people are going to be in serious trouble. I can't remember any cycle that hasn't produced a whole lot of foreclosures, any down cycle that is. And I think this one will be no different. So one of uh, one of my mentors told me that one of his mentors always told him it's not as important to call the top of the market. It's important to call the bottom. And I think right now the fact that we're in a transition where is the sweet spot that you're looking for that I sit on the sidelines and wait for it to go down? Or like, how do you hedge your bets of like exactly where to jump in that you're not catching it at the wrong point? You know, it's a, it's a very strange time of the transition there. Yeah, I'm going to answer it probably different than you think. <clears throat> we, uh, our company looks to partner with operators who know how to find a lot of intrinsic value in a deal. I'm going to use a quick kind of silly example. You meant, did you mention Michelangelo earlier? Yeah, yeah. So Michelangelo is the greatest sculptor of all time. At least he was believed to be, and I believe it. Uh, he said he could find a block of marble and in that block of marble, he could look inside it somehow and see an angel trapped there. All he had to do is knock off the superfluous material to get, to chisel down to find that angel. In the same way, we partner with operators who see intrinsic value in assets that's much, much higher than the sale price, the extrinsic value, if you will. And Warren Buffett and others say, if you can find assets that have much higher intrinsic than extrinsic, the sale price value, then you are creating a significant margin of safety. And that's what we like to do in any market. So a margin of safety, I mean, to get real technical for just a moment, 
is called the debt service coverage ratio. That's the ratio of the net operating income to the debt payment in any given you know, period, like a month or a quarter, et cetera. So the debt service coverage ratio the banks want to see is 20 to 30%. We like to invest with operators who can pay a fair price to a mom and pop owner and then go in and significantly raise the income by basically uh, chiseling away the superfluous, superfluous stuff like Michelangelo or adding stuff that can significantly increase income. And then therefore, uh, adding that taking that debt service coverage ratio from 1.2 or 1.3, 20 to 30% margin of safety, up to well north of 2.0 or even 3.0, giving 100 or even up to a 200% margin of safety between the income and the debt payment. And then if things go south, rents go sideways, occupancy drops, delinquency rises, you're still so, so far in the black every month that you have no problem. And so we're always looking to invest in deals like that, invest in deals like that. I mean, a perfect example, this is super simple, but let's say you bought a self-storage facility for $3 million. And let's say it was 2 million in debt, so 66% or so debt, and 1 million in equity. So you got a million dollars in this $3 million facility. If you add U-Haul and you can you know, let's say you can add 3000 a month to your bottom line. That's 36000 a year. In commercial real estate, the formula for value is the value is the net operating income divided by the cap rate. So if you can divide that 36000 a year in income by a conservative cap rate of 6%, 0.06, you just created 600000 in new value at that facility, but you didn't pay a penny to do that. Well, now, I mean, you've not only created a much higher debt service coverage ratio, but now you just created 60% increase in the value of the equity. Uh, another quick example is a lot of these self-storage facilities run by mom and pops. They have like five or six acres out back they're not using. Well, you pave that or gravel it incrementally and use it for boat and RV storage. You could potentially double the income of that facility in that case. So there's significant things that can be done that a mom and pop wouldn't do that you can do as a professional operator to increase that margin of safety. And I would say that doing that, you know, honestly, Nick, in any market is what we'd want to do, whether it was an up or a down market. So I, I think it comes down to what you're saying is the discipline to really hold out for the deals that you have. Yeah. the proper cushion in there whereas people are just playing on the scarcity mentality of i gotta buy something and like you said well i'll jump on this deal but they're really getting emotional they're not holding out for the safe deal and i i tell everybody i'd rather have a bad day than a bad deal be upset that you didn't get that deal pass on it because you don't want to force a deal because you want to feel good that day and realize 6 12 18 months from now that that's a deal you can't get out of it's never good i love that i'm gonna have to write that down warren buffett said uh, the most successful people say no a lot. The very most successful say no almost all the time. Awesome. I, I've i struggled with that, but I'm getting much better at, at doing that. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Me too. I'm a people pleaser, but I, I'm learning that it's not it's not helping. But So a couple of things. I'm going to throw a couple of asset classes at you, and I'd just like to hear just your quick take on what you would do with it now, what your opinion on it now versus later. Somebody send you some land. What's your opinion right now on Roland? 
Raw land is typically the riskiest or one of the riskiest real estate asset classes. Um, I'm going to brag on my 29-year-old son for a minute. He's done 28 uh, raw land deals in the last five years, and every one of them has turned a profit. What he does is he goes and finds intrinsic value in the land. So he might pay somebody a very fair price. Let's say it's 300000 for 150 acres of mountain land here in the Blue Ridge Mountains, but he'll be able to extract timber out of it. I mean, he might be able to make a lot of money from the timber. He can subdivide it. He can even put cabins on it, which I have to admit he hasn't done yet, but he could subdivide it for people wanting to do cabins. He could potentially, if it lays right, do an RV park. He could put a cell tower on it. He could scrape it off for farming. He could do tax credits, and he could do uh, solar power, which he hasn't done yet. But those are the kind of things you could do to make raw land a great deal in almost any market. That's very interesting. We have nine acres we just developed or got it entitled the next. Then we got a cell phone tower that we negotiated in for free. And it nice. got approved for townhomes. But I am thinking about those other things of like, hey, maybe there's a better way to do this and stuff. So that's interesting. I appreciate that. And multifamily. What's your take on multifamily today? So I wrote a book <clears throat> called The Perfect Investment in 2016, capitalized on a, uh, wait, 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 um, let me back up. You probably want to edit that. So I wrote a book called, <laughs> I wrote a book called The Perfect Investment, which was about multifamily in 2016. And I found out that for my team, at least, multifamily wasn't the perfect investment because for the last five or six years, you've had to overpay to get there unless you were finding really unusual deals. And so I have been wary of multifamily for a number of years. That's why we expanded into other asset types. Uh, when I told my dear wife, I'm not going to chase any more shiny objects. But um, yeah, we, we think multifamily is in a really, diff uh, as I mentioned earlier, a difficult time right now because the value on paper should have declined a little by the cap rate expansion. And if you think about it, if you buy a 4% cap rate asset and that cap rate ex expands to 6%, you've got to make like 30 or 40% more net operating income just to break even. Or in other words, you I mean, it's a very, very bad situation. And I don't know that a lot of people appreciate that. Agree, especially, I never understood how somebody buys something at a four cap and they're paying 6% for their financing. It doesn't work. I mean, it, it only works. Okay. I'll say this. <clears throat> it only works in two situations. Number one, if the value adds are so huge, like I mentioned five minutes ago, that you can overcome that number one, or number two, if your loan to value or loan to cost ratio is very, very low. Stretching. We're almost to the crown jewel, but what is your take on mobile home parks? Mobile home parks have come under some scrutiny recently. There's <clears throat> a lot of people who, you know, in the press just the last few months who have written really negative stuff about mobile home parks. There are 43,000 mobile home parks in the U.S. and about 80 to 90 percent are owned by um, sell, by mom and pop operators. And this is the only asset class I know of that has an increasing demand and a decreasing supply every year. Now that might change because of the current administration saying, you know, making all kinds of uh, allowances and mandates to, you know, get more manufactured housing out there. However, 
for um, for investors who don't want to gouge their tenants and operators who want to treat their tenants right, I think it's a fabulous investment. I mean, honestly, for the tenants who are there, if they lost their and you can interview the tenants, and the vast majority will agree with this that you know the the next option if they can't afford a mobile home is under a bridge. And so the, you know, eight or seven, seven or eight or nine million people or families who live in mobile home parks gen, generally are very, very grateful to live there. And um, so we, yeah, we invest in mobile home parks. I love that. I, it was really eye-opening to me too. One of the first mobile home parks I did when I got the walkthrough videos done, if you would have looked at the interior only on some of the apartment buildings versus some of the mobile home parks, you would have definitely thought they were the opposite just for like whatever was in your head with your preconceived notions. But yeah. the trailers were kept way better, way not. You would have thought it was just a three bed, two bed, single family home, beautifully kept. And some of these apartments, it's like, it's, it's amazing. It just, it was <clears throat> eye opening to see the difference. Well, think about it. Think about it, Nick. And, 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 you know, the, the apartment is owned by you, the landlord, but the mobile homes typically owned by the tenant. And so, therefore, they have a way bigger vested interest in, you know, take, keeping a nice place. It's a great point. Great point. Now, moving on to the crown jewel, let's talk about self-storage. Okay, fantastic. Well, um, self-storage, like I said, has, I, I think it's 53,000 or so facilities in the U.S. That's about the same as uh, Starbucks, McDonald's, and Subway's combined. About three out of every four are run by independent operators, and about two of three of those independents are mom and pops, meaning they have one uh, they have one asset. And that doesn't mean they're a bad operator, but it typically means if they don't have the desire, the knowledge, or the resources to upgrade the asset, increase income, increase that margin of safety I talked about, and maximize value for investors. They don't have to. I mean, cap rates on these things, again, if you're tracking with cap rates, have dropped from like, say, 10% to let's say 5% in a very short time. So a mediocre self-storage facility could have doubled in value literally just by the market. And again, we don't want to trust the market to make our profits because that's like the guy who, when the market goes the other way, they're going to be found out to be a skinny dipper in Warren Buffett's words. But we want to find assets that have significant upside intrinsically. And so, I mean, think about it. It's self-storage, along with RV parks, came out as the top-performing commercial real estate asset after the pandemic. People were downsizing and needed a place to store their stuff, or they were moving sometimes from Chicago or New York to the South. They needed a place to store their stuff. Uh, restaurants and businesses were closing. Offices were downsizing. They needed a place to store their stuff. And so rents are inelastic. And here's what I mean. I mean, if I have a, a you know $2,000 a month rent on an apartment and you raise it by 10% to 2,200, I might leave. But if you raise my, the rent on my storage unit from $100 by 10% to $110 a month, I'll probably grumble for about five seconds before I forget about it. And I'm not gonna probably spend a weekend get a moving van and my friends together just to move my junk, excuse me, my treasures down the street <laughs> to save $10 a month, especially when they may increase the cost as well. Um, Self-storage has done a great job capturing inflation because you can raise the rents if you choose 
every month because all the rent, all the leases are month to month leases. And so unlike an industrial or warehouse that might have a five or 10 or even a 20 year lease on it, um, you know, the, uh, you can capture inflation real quickly in a self-storage facility. There's lots of low cost value ads like the one I mentioned, U-Haul or, you know, paving or graveling, you know, for, for outdoor storage. There are, uh, there are, it's easy to evict somebody. Think about it. I mean, you've got their stuff. And if they're two months behind, they're going to have to pay up to get their stuff out or to keep their stuff there. And there's no eviction moratorium because there's no people, hopefully, living in these units. (laughs) And so it's really easy to evict people. We just think it's a great place to be, especially with the way the situation, the economy is right now that our favorite our favorite business strategy is acquiring from a lot of mom and pops, putting together a franchise coalition, if you will, of a portfolio, and then selling it all to an institutional buyer. That's awesome. I love that. And, you know, I I feel like what you just described is it's the asset class that's a little bit like the Las Vegas in the sense that things are terrible, people go to Vegas. Things are great, people go to Vegas. Like it's, you know, like <laughs> I never thought hard, of that. They go and sell storage, they do bad, they go and sell storage. So it kind of catches it on both ends, which I think is, is obviously one of the reasons why I feel like you feel it's a safe bet because no matter what's happening, there's a need for self-storage, good or bad. Right. It's very true. I mean, I, and again, I don't want to sound like it's therefore recession proof. Let's talk about a few of the downsides. Number one, if you're leasing up a new asset, let's say you build a ground up self storage in a booming area, let's say Tampa, Florida. Well, if two more national competitors pop up next door to you about the same time, you could be in a world of trouble because all three of you now are going to have to share that same number of you know new tenants. I've never seen, I've never heard of a self storage that didn't eventually fill up. But if you have to fill up in, let's say, 15 months to stay on track with your pro forma. And now it takes, you know, 30 months, which is very possible, then that is a negative. So we actually, though we don't exclusively do it, we like investing in small towns or smaller towns where there won't likely be a big competitor pop up. Uh, that's that's one downside to sell storage. Another one is uh, people who... Um, there's uh, some of the facilities are becoming automated now. Those who are, you know, have employees who, you know, run the U-Haul, for example, what I mentioned earlier, sometimes they're finding themselves at a cost disadvantage to the ones who are automated. And this is one thing I didn't do a good job of in my book. Don't buy my book. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Seriously, my book didn't because it was written just before COVID and it was released after or in the middle of COVID just a year ago. Um, it didn't really hit on the power of automating your facility very well. And I would add a chapter now if I was writing that book. Okay, awesome. I love that. And I, I'm a big believer in asking people, what do I do if things go right? What do I do if things go wrong? So I very much appreciate that you said, here's the pros, here's the cons, because anything you're going to invest in is always going to have both. And I think educating mm-hmm. people on both of those options shows a lot about who you are. So I appreciate that you went out of your way to bring those up as well, because yeah, it's thanks. not a quick team. Anybody listening, that's not what any of this is. You know, so. Yeah, and Charlie Munger says, if, if it seems easy, you're probably stupid. I like that. I like that. So another thing, I know you're, you're running out of time. You've been very generous with your time. But I did want to talk on some of the things that you can do when you're in a place that you've helped yourself, like the old plane thing. You put your old mask on first, 
And you're now doing something to help with human trafficking. So I'd love to hear a little bit about what your passion is for that part of it. <laughs> Nick, about six years ago, I found out that if you take the record profits of Apple, General Motors, Nike, and Starbucks, record profits, and add those together, double that number, that's the approximate profits being generated by human trafficking every year right now. I'm talking about the record profits. It's a huge number according to the U.S. State Department. And I'd like to believe if I was alive in the 1800s that I would be fighting for abolition of slavery. I think we all would. And I'd like to believe if I was an adult in the 1960s, I would be fighting for just civil rights. Well, this is a civil right. This is slavery. It's happening right under our noses. <clears throat> in fact, since you and I started this podcast, about 600 people have been captured or sold into slavery. It is a huge, huge problem. And it is happening right under our noses, like I said. So we want to do something about it. Wellings Capital partnered with our friends at Collective Genius, the real estate mastermind, to actually raise 255000 to fight human trafficking and rescue its victims uh, a few months ago. And we plan to raise more later this year. So we really are passionate about this and we recommend that people consider getting involved. Shout out to the Collective Genius guys as well. They get, they're shouted out on this podcast by all of the most successful people that come on. So I think that that's awesome. And I love that you're doing something about that and that they're joining you in that fight. Because again, I, I think most people don't understand the severity. Like that was a mind-blowing stat. I had no idea it was that massive. That's insane. Yeah, it is. It's crazy. And, you know, as, a, as somebody who watched my wife and daughter suffer for decades from a few horrible incidents done against them when they were younger, um, I can't imagine what happens to people who are daily harmed so badly multiple times, even before lunchtime. Well, I very much love and respect that you're doing that because I tell everybody as much as it's about money, it's not, it's about people. And once you put yourself in a good financial spot, this is really where it becomes is that you can donate your money, you can donate your time, you can leverage your audience to make a bigger difference for the people that can't champion for themselves. So thank you for doing that. Thank you for coming on. You've been awesome with your time. It's been a big thrill for me to come on and talk to you about everything with life and business and the stuff you're now giving back to. I like to call this the victory lap and just wrap things up with a few quick questions if you got another minute or two. All right. What is one of your favorite quotes? Well, I, I, I named some of them, you know, the skinny dipping quote, but I mean, uh, I'll have to go back to the one thing. Um, and uh, there are a couple quotes from that, actually. One, uh, Keller and Papazon said, uh, the ancient Chinese quote, um, he who chases two rabbits will catch neither. And another quote was from, uh, from them was, I've learned over the decades that if I'm going to say yes to my one thing, I'll have to say no to thousands of distractions along the way. I absolutely love that. And I'm glad we didn't hit that quote earlier because that is one of my favorites. Chase two rabbits, catch none. I opened that book one day and was like, man, like this is speaking to me. And I do try and think about that daily. I think it's awesome. Um, the next thing would be, I know you need a couple of books, but right now, timely with the market, aside from the books that you have written, what would be one of your books that you would recommend most right now? Well, I mentioned uh, Howard Marks, Mastering the Market Cycle. Uh, it's a phenomenal book about, you know, especially where we are right now, but he wrote an earlier book as well. And that earlier book was called The Most Important Thing. 
And you might think, oh, well, what's the most important thing from this billionaire uh, hedge fund manager? Well, he has about 18 different things that he says all are the most important thing. It's sort of tongue in cheek, but it's a fabulous book and one worth reading and rereading over through your lifetime. Excellent. I'm definitely going to add that. And last, but certainly not least, how do people find you, work with you, contact you, learn more about what you have going on? Wellings Capital Group, everything going on with you. Yeah. So I spent years uh, as part of my story, trying to figure out how to get involved in commercial real estate. And I wasn't sure where the on-ramp was, who to trust, where to start. And so now that I'm in that, I actually have written an ebook that's also an audible, an e-course, et cetera. You can get that by going to our website, Wellings Capital. That's W-E-L-L-I-N-G-S, wellingscapital.com slash resources to get that and more eBooks that we've written about commercial real estate investing. Awesome. And for anybody listening, all the links for these books and all the links for his, his, um, his website and everything we have, we're talking about here, there will be links to all of that in the show notes. So if you want a live link, just jump on the show notes and click on there and you can find all the ways to connect. Any final thoughts before I let you go, sir? Yeah. So Nick, I mentioned earlier, you know, how I chased shiny objects over the years, and I found out it's really, really important to consider the possibility that you should not necessarily get the excitement, the thrill, the entrepreneurial charge from your investing that you do from being an entrepreneur. And so people like me, by nature, tried to get both from the same thing. And I failed a lot. And that's part of the reason why I would actually recommend that people consider having their investments be quite boring. And I'd love to do a talk called The Boring Investor. Paul Samuelson is America's first Nobel Peace Prize winner in economics. And he says, investing should be like watching paint dry or watching grass grow. If you want excitement, take $800 and go to Las Vegas. <laughs> Wise words. I absolutely love that. You, sir, bring your A-game to everything you do and have done in the past, present, and future, and you have brought your A-game to this interview today. Thank you so much for coming on. It's been an absolute pleasure, Mr. Paul Moore, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks, Nick. <laughs>